you know, sometimes you just have to, I don't know, acknowledge that uh, one team's just better than the other, right? You just have to acknowledge that certain things happen to certain teams, and that's just the way it is. Some of us might not like it, but how about those Blazers? <laughs> I couldn't wait to do that today. <laughs> it's good to see everybody this morning. If you're visiting with us at Grace, we're thrilled that you're here to be a part of our service. And we've come to worship the Lord, and that's why we're here. And I trust that that's why you're here uh, today. And this morning, we have a unique privilege to start out with baby dedication. You know, we, we are blessed at Grace to have many children. The Lord has blessed us with many children. And... As I look out over the audience, a lot of those teenagers out there are actually held at one time in a hospital. And uh, so when I look out at, at all these kids and them growing up, it certainly happens quick, doesn't it? They get out from among us very quickly. And so our opportunity to influence and impact our children before they go away from us is really a small window. And in that window, it's very important that as parents and grandparents and as men and women who know the Lord, that we emphasize to these children the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. We want to see them grow up and come to faith in Jesus Christ and live for Him as Lord. That's what we want to see. And so we're going to be faithful here at Grace to do our part. And we're going to teach God's Word, whether we're here in the sanctuary or in classrooms, whether it be children, youth, adults, we're going to teach God's Word. And we want these children, as they grow up, to, to come to know Christ. And I, I, I trust that these baby dedications aren't just uh, like, okay, we got through another one, but that it, for you it's significant because you may have a significant part in the life of uh, this child that we dedicate today. And uh, so I just, I pray that what's done here this morning will honor the Lord. You know, Psalms tells us that children are a gift from the Lord. And um, we're just so thankful for our children. I've watched my boys grow up, and um, they're out of the house, mostly. My, my young one comes back every once in a while, but it goes by quick. And so we acknowledge as we get older, yeah, children are a gift from the Lord. And um, as a congregation, we have the responsibility to um, take our role. And to submit to the Lord and ask Him, how can, how can we be involved in the lives of these children as they grow up? And so this morning, we want to uh, dedicate Easton Thomas Albright. So he can't come up here on his own. He's going to need some help. So if Rusty and Katie will come up, and if the grandparents, uh, if there's great-grandparents, if you're related to them, if you want to be related to them, uh, anyone who wants to come up here... We'd love to have you. Little Easton. He's a cutie. I got to hold him in the hospital. Told Rusty the only Easton I knew was an Easton bat. Remember the Easton bats? None of y'all played baseball or softball. Okay. I wanted to remind... Uh, rusty of something today. That'd be all right? Okay. And it's found in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. He writes 
uh, about the responsibility that children have to obey their parents. Y'all like that text, don't you, children? You love that text. And in the second verse, it says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And then it's interesting that the Apostle Paul addresses fathers. I think, I think he does because fathers are the head of the home, right? Husbands are the head of the home. And there's great responsibility that comes with that. And all of us that are fathers understand that responsibility. And it's something to, to read it, but then it's another thing to embrace it. This is what Paul wrote. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Which can happen, by the way. How many fathers would say, that can happen, all right? <laughs> it can happen. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. And the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so the focal point, I know for Rusty and Katie, uh, I remember doing their wedding. And I know that, and we talked about in our premarital counseling, the, the focus of their home, the, the central focus was to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know it is for them. And uh, we're thankful for that. But as you guys raise little Easton, Make sure you keep Christ at the center. That's very, very important. It's very easy to kind of get off track sometimes and kind of try to do things in our own strength. And we think, well, I can do this and I can do that. But Christ needs to be the central focus. We need to be dependent on him. So I know you guys know that, but I just thought I'd remind you, Rusty, especially of the responsibility the Lord's given you. And so we're thankful for this family. Amen. And we're thankful for little Easton. Isn't he cute? Huh? Can I hold a little Easton? Hey, buddy. How are you? Huh? Yeah, look. Isn't he cute? You got the right colors on. That's what I know. All right? Well, why don't we have a word of prayer? And let's dedicate a little Easton to the Lord. All right? Father, we are so thankful for the gift of life. All of us enjoy that gift. And there are some of us in this room that enjoy the gift of eternal life. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful, Father, that you are the giver. And Lord, um, you've given Rusty and Katie this little boy, Easton. And I pray that as Easton grows up, Lord, that as he's introduced to you, that he would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he would live for you. And I pray for Rusty and Katie as they, as they uh, bring these children up. I especially pray, Lord, that, that you would put it on Rusty's mind as the leader of the home to bring this little boy up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And um, we just, just commit him and Katie to you and so thankful for them and thankful for this precious gift that I hold here, Lord, that you've given to them. And so we commit them to you. We commit little Easton to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. He lost his passy while we were praying. <laughs> you should see these eyes he's making at me. All right. Those lights. Congratulations, guys. Got a little Bible for you guys, all right? Thank you. All right. Thank you guys for coming up this morning. Lord. Noel, come and see what God has done. I want to invite y'all to all sing along with us. So let's all stand and let's just sing on some of the songs. Joy to the world to start off with. Mm -hmm. 
favorites. Sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. for the little mix-up we had that was all on me <laughs> that uh, we had a little we had a little glitch with the computer a little while ago and I had made those changes to not have some of those verses and they were knocked out and we've got to fix those but anyway I hope that didn't uh, distract us too much from the fact that God is a holy God that has come to us and loved us so much that he sent his own son the only one who would be able to die for our sins because he's the perfect one. This child is the one that's the child in the manger, and that's what we want to sing about right now.
Let's pray together, maybe. Oh, Lord, we're just so thankful this morning that the child that was in that manger was no ordinary person. There's no one who just claimed to be the Messiah. The Lord was the Messiah. Not only claimed to be the Son of God, but was the Son of God. He's going to claim to be the Savior of the world. The Lord was the Savior of the world. And God, we just want to thank you and just praise you this morning and worship you, Father, because of the great and wonderful plan that you had and you made happen. And Lord, it wasn't just for the people back then, Lord, it was for us today. And God, as the angels would sing or would say, they would say, Alleluia, Christ is born. Father, help us as your followers, as your family, as your children, Lord, to proclaim that truth this Christmas, that Christ is born, the one who came to save his people. We are his people from their sins. And Lord, we just thank you and we just praise you for that this morning. So, Lord, we just ask you that you would just help us to continue to worship you and to come before your presence with singing and shouting and with the word of God. Lord, we just pray that you would just be in the rest of this hour uh, this morning. And, Lord, as you would just touch in each, each and every one of our hearts. Be with us right now. These things we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to ask you to use your imaginations. Is that all right? Well, even if it's not, I need you to use them. Imagine with me, if you will, if on the front page of the New York Times, tomorrow it said, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Imagine, if you will, when we went home tonight, if on one of the news stations whether it was CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News, if it came on and they declared that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Some of you are laughing. You might fall out, right? Imagine if Congress came out tomorrow and said, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. All of us as believers would say what? That's right. That's what we would say. You know, last week, um, I got started on this little series called Changed Lives. And I didn't even know it was a series until this week. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's one of those things I'm like, you know, when you're saying, Lord, just lead me in whatever it is you want me to say. I mean, that's a scary proposition because, you know, it's Sunday, then it's Monday, then it's Tuesday, and then it's Wednesday. And you're like, okay, Lord, it's Wednesday. And... Um, so the Lord just kept uh, actually leading me to different passages of Scripture. And he led me to one this morning that we're going to concentrate on. I, with time, it's already 11.02. There's absolutely no way we're going to be done today. The great part about this is that you can come back next week for part two. There, it is true that sometimes we look at folks and we say they are past saving. You ever done that? You ever looked at someone and said, there is no way that the Lord would ever save this person. 
There's a man in the Bible like that. There are several in the Bible like that. But let me just give you a little bit about this man. This man roasted two men in the fire. Jeremiah 29 tells us that. This man, according to 2 Kings, put Zedekiah's eyes out. That sounds brutal, doesn't it? But before putting them out, he slaughtered his sons. He wanted his last image to be of his slaughtered sons. Just with those two descriptions, we would say, man, this guy, he's, he's, he's too far off. He's too far gone. He doesn't deserve grace. And none of us deserve grace. In the Bible, we're told that he wanted to butcher a group of men and he heated the furnace seven times hotter than normal. Because men would not bow down to his golden image. You know who this man is? This man's name's Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to go with me to Daniel in the fourth chapter. Daniel chapter 4. It's a powerful testimony. Is what we have in front of us in Daniel chapter 4. That's kind of my title, a powerful testimony. I couldn't come up with anything else. That was it. Powerful testimony. It's a testimony that is literally, when you read through the chapter, it's quite amazing what transpires in the life of this man and how he changed. Um, I remember being a youngster and hearing about this story. You know, when you're young and you hear about these stories, you're like, huh? And as you get older, you're still going, huh? It's quite a powerful story. And you need to know that this testimony is a first-person testimony. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is telling us, telling his audience, what happened to him. In fact, it starts out a little bit different. I need to give you a couple of just facts. Is that okay I can do that? Good. Um, this is about, in years, 25 to 30 years after the fiery furnace. So some time has transpired between the events of chapter 3 and what we have as chapter 4. This is about 30 to 35 years into the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting that the way the, the chapter starts out, because what we really have is a letter here, and it starts out with uh, the identification of who wrote the letter, which typically in a letter, when do you identify yourself as the one writing the letter? The beginning or the end? The end. Very good, class. You're with it. Good job. So the writer here is Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 1 what it says. Nebuchadnezzar. The king, that's who he was. He was a king, and he was a powerful king. He was a ruthless man. He was cruel, and he was a pagan. Any of you ever run across pagans? They're out there. Um, notice that the writer identifies his audience. It's interesting, the recipients here, as you look at it, it's everyone. Everyone in the known world, look at this. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples. Wouldn't it be interesting if you and I could get our testimony out there like that? You know, put your name in the front. You know, Chris or Becky 
to all the peoples of the United States. We'll just take the United States. Imagine that if you were able to write forth your testimony about how God changed your life. Wouldn't that be awesome to be able to do that? Wouldn't it be awesome to have that platform? You know, the Lord gives us platforms. They may not be as big as Nebuchadnezzar's, but God gives us platforms. And you know what he expects us to do? He expects us to act in those platforms. So if, you are, if your platform is a school, he's given you that platform to speak forth the truth of the gospel. You know, if your platform is at a job or at a retirement center, I don't know where you hang out all week long, but whatever the platform is, God has given it to you and he expects you to do something with it. Is it fair to say that? Well... Notice what it says. To all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. <laughs> right? I mean, he's Nebuchadnezzar. He is the ruler. And he wants everyone to hear him. It's interesting. So we move from the writer and the recipients to a, um, a little phrase here that's kind of interesting because it almost reminds me of what Paul would write in his letters. Leave out grace. He says, may your peace abound. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me. And then we come to the subject of the letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote. The subject is the Most High God. Look what it says, verse 2. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, this is a very personal testimony, and that's what a testimony is, right? It's personal. It's personal to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, when someone says, what's your testimony? Can I just give you, like, this is just a side note on testimony. When someone says, what is your testimony? Yeah, it's important to go back and identify that day and time when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but can I encourage you to go beyond that? Is that Okay. Right? Because there is that point of salvation for all who are in Christ, but it's important that we continue to talk about how the Lord worked in our lives. <laughs> you know, I think that some Christians, and this happens, I didn't plan on saying this, but sometimes I think we get kind of stagnant. So whenever I have in my life, I immediately ask one question. Am I in the Word? Mind the word. Well, Nebuchadnezzar says, It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. And then notice what he says about the Most High God. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. And he's about to testify about all that stuff and how that worked out in his life in this chapter. And notice what he says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. There's a distinction here between man's kingdom and God's kingdom. Now, a king may say, I will rule forever. But the reality is there is only one that rules forever. There is only one kingdom that is forever, and it's the kingdom of God. He says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and you're going to see... It's interesting, we won't get to it today. That's really too bad. Did you bring a lunch? 
Because at the end, it's kind of reversed a little bit with what Nebuchadnezzar says about the kingdom and about, about the dominion. But he says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion or his rule is from generation to generation. My friends, listen to me. There is never a time when our God is not in control. Now, it may look like it. You know, to us, we may go, wow, hey, Lord, do you know what's going on in the United States, Lord? Do you have any idea what's going on? There you go. <laughs> Preach it. Yes, he does. Lord, but you don't know what's going on in my life right now. You don't know all the aches and the pains and the troubles and the trials and the tribulations. But he does. <laughs> I just need to invite this man to get up here. <laughs> he does. He knows. Guys, listen to me. In the darkest hour of your week, he knows. And listen, all of us have times where we're really having it rough. You know, and at least it's rough to us. Well, so the subject is the Most High God. And so the question becomes, how in the world did Nebuchadnezzar get to this point? I'm glad you asked that question. Because the chapter reveals to us how Nebuchadnezzar got to this point. I want you to notice... We go here to the vision of the tree. That's the kind of the big uh, heading in verses 4 through 18. There's a lot of little things that transpire between 4 and 18. Um, but that's kind of the big heading, the vision of the tree. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Notice verse 4, the position of Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, this is a first-person testimony. He's, he's telling us what took place with him. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. That doesn't mean he was in a recliner. That means he just didn't have any troubles. Remember, he is 30 plus years into his kingdom. And listen, Babylon was an amazing place. I wasn't going to read this till later, but oh well, I'm going to read it now. The city of Babylon was at its height of glory, being one of the largest and finest cities of the world. This is a theologian writing about Babylon as he's talking through this particular chapter. It was surrounded by a system of double walls. I thought this was really interesting. The outer one of which was 17 miles long and wide enough for chariots to pass on its top. Of the city, eight gates, of the city's eight gates, excuse me, the most celebrated was the Ishtar Gate. It gave access from the north to the sacred processional. The processional street was about a thousand yards long, and it was decorated on either side by enameled bricks showing 120 lions, 575 dragons and bulls, many bell symbols, which was their god, B-E-L. Remember... Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel his name. What's his name? Belteshazzar, as we're going to see. More than 50 temples crowded within the city walls at the time. The Greeks considered the hanging gardens within the city one of the seven wonders of the world. These were elevated gardens, high enough to be seen beyond the city walls. 
Now, I've been to the botanical gardens. That's just not, you know, if you enjoy that, praise be. But I don't. They're just flowers, right? But, but th- that's just me, right? I, I'd rather go to a baseball stadium, right? You say, what's wrong with you? Well, something's wrong with me. I don't know. But when it comes to this, I'm going, this must have been an absolutely unbelievable place. Difficult to describe. But history records that the gardens were made by Nebuchadnezzar especially for the enjoyment of his wife. Well, and that's, there's a good little lesson there, right? We want to please our wives. So Neb even wanted to do that. The Bible says he was at ease in his house and flourishing in my palace. He was doing just fine. And when, listen, when you have that mentality, then what's the result of that? If I'm at ease and I'm doing just fine and I'm flourishing, which is an interesting word in the Hebrew, it means growing green. So he's looking, he's sitting back, he's got all this power, all this luxury that he's created for himself, and he wants people to bow down and worship him. He's doing just fine, and he doesn't need God. And you know what? That's what happens at times to people, right? They sit back and they go, I don't need the Lord. I got it. I don't need him. I don't need your God. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? I don't need your God. My friends, listen to me. Everyone that's sitting in here and everyone outside of here needs the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's doing just fine, verse 4. Well, verse 5, something changes. Note with me what it says. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. That's hard to picture. Here's a guy who is the ruler. And he's fearful. And it's interesting the way he describes it as he's looking back and writing on this. He says, And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And in the Hebrew it means over and over and over and over again. He couldn't get it out of his mind, this vision that he had. Um, so, verse 6 says, I gave orders to bring into my present all, presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Boy, what must it have been like to work for Neb? Didn't want to get it wrong. I mean, if you're thinking through, as you're going through the story, I'm going, man, I don't know. If, if I'm, do I really want to stand in front of this guy? He's alarmed by what he's seen. Verse 7 tells us, Then the magicians, the conjurers, and the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. That sound familiar? Should, because chapter 2, that's what takes place as well. They couldn't make the dream uh, come to a point of explanation in chapter 2, and the same thing happens here in chapter 4. But notice verse 8, But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And that first three letters there of Bel is the God of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. According to the name of my God, he says, and whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, And look at this next phrase, and no mystery baffles you. In other words, you're not confused. You seem to get this. 
Tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now I have to stop for a minute and explain this little phrase here, a spirit of the holy gods. It occurs three times in this little passage. It occurs in verse 8, it occurs in verse 9, and it occurs in verse 18. What in the world is meant when he says a spirit excuse me, a spirit of the holy gods. Well, there's a couple of different views. There always seems to be a couple of different views. Um, one view is that, uh, which is reflected in the King James Version, is that um, he's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. The King, New King James Version, excuse me, not King James, but the New King James Version has it translated the Holy Spirit of God. But the King James and the New American Standard don't translate it that way. They translate it the way you see it here, a spirit of the holy God. So which is it? Who's Nebuchadnezzar at this point referring to? Um, I just wanted to read to you a couple of things. I think it's important for you to hear this. Uh, you can go home this afternoon and, and read more and study up on it some more. But uh, Dr. Leon uh, Wood, I think, gave a good explanation for this particular phrase. Um, he says, some expositors argue that Nebuchadnezzar used this phrase here in respect to gods generally, okay, because it was a polytheistic culture. Um, Nebuchadnezzar could be expected to have been speaking out of the usual pagan concept of the day. And considering the fact that he's going back and writing through his testimony, that kind of makes sense. Because at this point in his testimony, right, he hasn't, there hasn't been a change. Um, but for Daniel, he recognizes that, the, that there's something different about him. There's something different about Daniel and his God. So Dr. Leon Wood write, Woods writes this about that. He says, there are several reasons for taking the phrase as a direct reference to Daniel's God in particular. The plural gods can be used in reference to a single deity in the Aramaic language as well as in the Hebrew and then secondly, he says, Nebuchadnezzar had already experienced on two different occasions the supremacy of Daniel's God. Chapter 2, chapter 3. He could not have forgotten, Dr. Wood writes, these occasions, especially since this was another dream situation like the first one in chapter 2. Then thirdly, he says, in verses 9 and 18, Nebuchadnezzar continued the use of the same phrase in a context telling why Daniel would be able to reveal the interpretation, and its meaning. The fourth thing he says is Nebuchadnezzar's attitude on seeing Daniel was clearly one of gladness, relief, and expectancy, indicating that he was seeing him as the one, now this, listen to this, who had met his need a prior time, which is recorded for us back in chapter 2, the time when Daniel had revealed the first dream and had explicitly identified the God of heaven as the one to receive all the credit, which Daniel was good to do. He said the word spirit here, in the Hebrew, is used uh, here by the, a person of a pagan background. It's not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but it is the king's way of identifying the point of contact within Daniel by which this holy God would make the necessary revelation. Nebuchadnezzar was only saying that Daniel had within him, that within him which made the impartation possible. So to sum it up, it's this. The one view is that he's talking about and recognizing the Holy Spirit of God. 
And even the plural is not a problem for some because they would say he's identifying the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I kind of believe that it's the other view. I believe that Daniel, as he's going through this, or Nebuchadnezzar, as he's going through this, this particular uh, in reflection of what took place in his life, he is pointing out the fact that there was something different about Daniel's God. You know? He's not like these other gods. There's something different about him. So I needed to tell you that because that's a phrase that people kind of underscore uh, in this particular section. All right, so then we have a continuation of this dream. He says, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. So as he's reflecting back and he's writing about what took place, he says, now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. So here we have the dream. Looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong. We're going to see he emphasizes the size of the tree, the strength of the tree, the prominence of the tree. All right? The fact that um, the tree was beautiful, that it was a tree of provision, a tree of shelter. Notice what he says. The tree grew large, verse 11, and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. So there was provision here. That's what he says. And then it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. So it was shelter and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. Look at this. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. That's the first part of the dream. Which emphasizes the tree's size, strength, prominence, beauty, provision, and shelter. Then you come to verse 13. He says, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, an angel, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and spoke as follows. Now, you remember back earlier, he says that he was troubled by this dream. Uh, the second part of this dream is troubling. You wonder how much Nebuchadnezzar understood. Don't know. But it says here, he shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let, yet leave the stump. Now, underline that because we're going to get to that later. Leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. And this is, periods there is years. Let seven years of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. Now notice the reason for the decision. Look at verse 17, I underscored this. In order that the living may know. So not just Nebuchadnezzar. Right? But the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Do you think mankind today knows that God is ruler? All mankind? No, not all mankind. If the sentence is by the decree, he says, of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, and here's the reason, in order that the living may know 
that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Now look at this. This is going to come up again. And bestows it on whom he wishes. Guys, we go to the polls and we vote. But you know, God's not surprised by the one that's in the White House. I don't care if it's 1964 or 1984 or 2004 or 2018 or 2024. The Lord knows. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Because I think sometimes we go, Man, Lord, did you know? But he knows. And we can rest in that. He says, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. And so we have this vision of the tree. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to know its meaning. And his guys can't do it. But there's a guy named Daniel. And I want you to notice three things from verse 19. uh, Or actually, yeah, three things from verse 19 uh, through verse 27. There's some very interesting things that take place in this passage. First of all, we're going to see the compassion of Daniel. Look verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. So the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Why would its interpretation alarm him? (laughs) Well, because he's about to have to tell Neb what's going on. Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if... Only the dream applied to those who hate you. (laughs) And it's interpretation to your adversaries. I see here some compassion on the part of, of Daniel. Here he is in front of the mightiest ruler. What's the concern in Daniel's heart? I'll tell you what it is that this king would know the Most High God. That he would know him. Just like it's yours and my concern that people in our family would know the Most High God, that our rulers in this country would, know, uh, would believe in the Most High God. Well, then we move from Daniel's compassion, verse 19, to Daniel's integrity. <laughs> He's got integrity. He's going to tell the truth. Notice verse 20. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you. (laughs) All right, I mean, we read that, well, it's you. But this is Daniel standing before Nebuchadnezzar who's alarmed by what he's seen in this dream and Daniel's interpreting the dream and he says, 
It is you. It's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember there's a, another time in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan comes to David and confronts him about his sin. You remember what he says? You are the man. You know, I read that, I started thinking, man, sometimes it, that hard truth, it's hard to communicate. But it's necessary. We don't back away from it just because, hey, it's hard for that person to hear. In fact, can I just show you something good? Turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of the passages I was studying this week, and I wondered why until later in the week. Because here, this man Daniel is confronting Nebuchadnezzar with the truth. He says, it is you, O king. You know, in the life of a believer, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we're a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And in this passage... In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul in verse 17 says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So he's describing the pagan. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you do what? What does it say? Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in what? In righteousness and holiness of what? The truth. Therefore, because of that, he says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying one of the ways we identify ourselves as believers is we speak the truth to our neighbor. And in this context, he gives you the reason why. For we are members of one another. What do you mean we are members of one another? What does that mean? Guys, listen. You know what it means? In the New Testament... We're told that believers, New Testament believers, the church is identified as the body of who? Of Christ. And within the body of Christ, there are what? Individual members. So if you're in Christ today, you're in the body of Christ. And you are a member of the body. But guess what? The person sitting next to you may be a member of the body as well. And so listen, as we identify the members of the body, according to Paul, what are we to do? Speak forth the truth. 
You ever had to say something really difficult to another believer? Well, if you haven't, you, you, something's going on. I've lived 54 years. I've been in the body of Christ about 46 of those years. And I've had hard things said to me. True things. What about you? It's difficult. Well, for Daniel, he's standing in front of the greatest ruler and he's telling him the truth. He's a man of integrity. You'd expect nothing less. He belongs to the Most High God. And he identifies in verse 22, he says, It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Verse 23 says, In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it in the, uh, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast of the field until seven years of time have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. In other words, there's no way out. Verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind. Now this is hard to imagine, the rest of this, but it happened. That you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods or years of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What was going through Neb's mind at that time? But notice the hope in verse 26 even here. In the midst of this pending judgment, there's hope. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump. Remember I said underscore that. With the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven. And this reference here is to God. It's the only time in the New Te Old Testament where that heaven is re referred to there as God. That rules. So... The hope here is given to Nebuchadnezzar. Even in the midst of this pending judgment, there's hope. And then I would like to submit to you that Daniel challenges Nebuchadnezzar. You know, any good pastor or teacher does that. There's a challenge or an exhortation. And remember, we saw just earlier the compassion of Daniel. But he doesn't want to communicate this to Nebuchadnezzar, but he has to. But in verse 27 here, we're given Daniel's challenge to Nebuchadnezzar. Notice this. Therefore, O king, because this is true, because this can come to pass, may my advice be pleasing to you. Now, this next statement's pretty tough. Notice what he says. I mean, I was reading that going, oh my goodness. Daniel, were his legs trembling? I don't have any idea. But he's speaking to a guy who can smoke him. 
He says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Look what he says. Break away now. He doesn't say break away in five days or five months. He says break away now. The word in the Hebrew means tear away from your sins. Tear away from your what? Sins. Notice that's plural. Not just one sin, but multitude of sins. So break away from your sins. You know what he's telling Nebuchadnezzar to do? Repent. Repent, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what our nation needs to do. Our nation needs to repent. There are individuals all around the United States and around the world that need to get down on their knees and repent. Daniel's telling the mighty ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, (coughs) to repent. And then he says, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So not only are you to turn away from your sins, but you're to do deeds of righteousness. <laughs> what, what a man that would stand in front of the most powerful ruler and tell him these things. But he had to, right? He was a man of integrity. He knew who the Most High was, and it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, it was God. Well... Last section, and we won't deal with the next one, but we'll deal with this last one. So we go from the interpretation of the dream to the dream coming true. Look at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Now notice this next little phrase here. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. It doesn't say one day later. It doesn't say one week later or six weeks later or six months later. It says 12 months. One year. What did Daniel just challenge Nebuchadnezzar to do? Repent. You know what we see here? The grace of God. Man, we listen to me. We serve a gracious God. (laughs) He gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months. He gave Nineveh 40 days. How long did... Noah preach 120 years every day that goes by there's common grace that's given to man the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous that's what the Bible says and do you know every day that goes by is God's grace it's God's grace 12 months went by Notice what it says. Later he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king reflected and said, and remember he's writing this as as it took place. The king reflected this and said, is this not Babylon the great which God has built? Is that what it says? No, at this point in his testimony, this is what he was saying. Which I myself have built as a royal residence by the power of God. Is that what it says? 
by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. In other words, what's Nebuchadnezzar saying? It's all about who? Me. Our culture is good at saying that same thing. It's all about me. It's all about my money and my wealth and my fortune, however, whatever words they use. It's about pleasing me and no one else matters. And you know what's right in the middle of all that? It's a word called pride. It's a word called pride. I'll close here. Can I remind you of two things real quick? One of them is a warning. The other one's a story that's... Turn it with me to Proverbs chapter 6. I want to show you this. Proverbs 6. Let me say a couple of things from Proverbs 6 and then we'll move to the other passage and close together. Solomon says, There are six things which the Lord hates. You know, when you're growing up as a kid and, and your, your father said, There are three things I don't ever want you to forget. You're like, Yes, sir. Then when you get to be a teenager, you're like, yeah. And then when you get married and you have kids, you're like, hey, my dad wasn't so dumb after all. But when the Lord is saying what he hates, I need to pay attention. He says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. You know, every time I look at that word abomination, it just ooh, gets on me. It's like one of those words that crawls on you. Abomination to him. Notice that first little phrase. Haughty eyes. You know that picture there is of what? Pride. <laughs> when I was in Bible college, Dr. John Talley, who's with the Lord now, he had a little formula for the believer that he didn't want the believer to forget. And of course, at the time, I was about 20, 21 years old. And I thought, I'm going to forget this formula. But do you know what? I've remembered that formula, and I'm now 54 years old. And the formula is this. Victory in the Christian life plus laxity equals catastrophe. It's easy to get lax. We need, listen, our eyes need to be on the Lord and not ourselves. I'll close with this little illustration about how much God hates pride. Go with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I apologize for not getting through it. You'd be one o'clock before I get done. Acts chapter 12. And this is about 
Herod. Verse 21. On an appointed day, having put on... On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his judgment seat... Or excuse me, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the judgment seat and began delivering an address to them. Here's what he said. Or excuse me, here's what they said. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. <laughs> okay. So we have Herod, and he's sitting on the judgment seat, and the people are crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. But we know it to be what? The voice of a man and not a God. Notice what verse 23 says. This is how the Lord deals with pride. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was, this is sick. He was eaten by worms and he died. The Lord hates pride. I was thinking about that particular section in Daniel. I'll close with this, but um, I think pride's one of those things that men really deal with. And I'm not saying that women don't. I think women do deal with that as well. Shows up, looks a little different. But men deal with pride almost on a daily basis. And you know at the, the end of the message of pride is this. I don't need you, Lord. That's what it's really saying. I got this one. Like you look at your checkbook and go, well, I'll figure this out. I don't need the Lord. You'll look at the relationship you have with your children or your wife. I'll figure this one out, Lord. I don't need you. You know what? Nebuchadnezzar thought he was just fine. And we're about to see in this story that God changed this man. Do you remember that time in your life where you said, hey, I don't need the Lord? But then something happened. The Spirit of God convicted you of your sin and your need for Christ, who is the Savior. You remember that day? You remember the day that the Spirit of God convicted you of your sins? You remember that? You remember saying, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I believe in what Jesus Christ did for me at the cross of Calvary and paying that sin debt. You remember that day? And you couldn't stop thinking about, wow, what a gift. And you couldn't stop declaring it to the people around you, which I could not stop doing when I was seven years old. I couldn't stop. I ran down the street, and I'm telling all my neighbor kids, my friends, hey, I belong to Christ. He died for my sins. And I've trusted in him as my savior. Do you know that the Lord is still in the business of saving folks? And we may not be on board here in the United States as much as we should. But God is still doing a saving work. My encouragement to all of us is jump on board. Do listen... Do like Nebuchadnezzar. We may not have an audience to the whole world, but write out that testimony. Tell it to someone. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this story of Nebuchadnezzar and how you 
brought him literally out of a pit. <laughs> trusting in himself and trusting in his righteousness and trusting in the things that he had and his power. He built Babylon for his glory. <laughs> and Lord, as we're going to run into next week, you're going to remind Nebuchadnezzar of some very important facts about being a king and having a kingdom. And then we're going to witness together this incredible transformation that took place, I believe, in the man named Nebuchadnezzar. I look forward to meeting him one day. <laughs> because as the rest of this story, it's, it's an amazing story of how you change this man and use drastic means to do so. And sometimes, Lord, we would confess that we look at folks and we say, well, they're past saving. They're really not worthy of salvation. Forgive us for that. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to believe that you transform lives. If we're in Christ today, we're sitting here as a believer, we know that you transformed us. And so I pray that we would have that mind as we continue to think about changed lives and that you would help us to think about today as we're out and about this afternoon doing different things that you would help us to refine our testimony how have we changed and how are you changing us even now as we live for you and so we just give you glory and we give you praise because you're the only one deserving of it in Christ's name amen There's an old hymn that we've sung through the years, and I love it because it's really a prayer that we sing to the Lord. And the prayer itself says, uh, O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. And so I, I think that kind of goes along with what he's saying because we're no longer living our life for ourselves, but we're living it for the Lord Jesus. So I just want us to sing through a couple of verses of this right here. And let's make this a prayer to the Lord that we would live our lives for him. Living for Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please Him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. Oh, Jesus Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master, my heart shall be Thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live 
sacrifice for the all. Let's do one more verse here. Let's sing. Living for Jesus who died in my place, bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace. Such love constrains me to answer His call. Follow His leading and give Him Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee. For Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be Thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, Ron, that's a pretty powerful line there. I own no other master. Um, you know, it's great, guys, is that he owns you. And um, our responsibility is to yield to him. That's what he's told us to do, yield to his spirit. So I pray that, that you've done that and that um, you're growing in your relationship to Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. And I share the gospel with you and how you can come to know him and have a personal relationship with him and walk with him day by day. Um, because I think even in churches today, there are many that sit and don't really know the master. And I'd love to introduce him to you today. So let's stand and close in a word of prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. Lord, as I, I said earlier, forgive our unbelief. There are times when, when our faith is, and our daily walk is it's, uh, not what it needs to be. And uh, we need your help, Lord, to believe even when the circumstances around us seem impossible, when the hurdles seem high. I pray, Lord, that we would know that no matter what crosses our path, um, you're with us. As your word says, you never leave us and you never forsake us. And we can depend on you. We can't depend on our world leaders, but we can depend on you. We can't necessarily depend on our neighbors that we live by, but we can depend on you. And even as much as we want to depend on our other brothers and sisters in Christ and be ones that people can depend on. We're not always dependable. But you are. Because there is no one like you. And so I pray as we leave this place today that that would be our mind. There is no one like you. There's no one that loves like you. There's no one that cares like you. Um, Lord, there's no one like you and that you know all things. And there's nothing that happens in our lives 
that's not already passed through your hands. We may not be able to understand it all or why it's happening. But Lord, it's, it's for our good. And as I think about what took place in the life of this king, <laughs> I know he couldn't imagine what took place. But how you use that, as he speaks right in the very beginning, your miraculous signs and wonders, you use those to change this man. Help us, Lord, to recognize the change that you've made in our lives and to live for you day by day with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.